0: the Lord with us to look into his word together and we encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, we want to begin with verse 17, verses 17 through 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. And will hand him over to Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. This is a short text. It is parallels in Mark 10, parallels in Luke 18. It's difficult to divide the body of. How much do you cover in each particular lesson? My first inclination was to include this with the discussion of verses 20 through 28. But this is the third statement of Jesus. The third statement of Jesus like this. Look back at Matthew 16. In Matthew 16 and verse 21, it says, From that time, And many people use that as a main point to outline the book of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, be raised up on the third day. After they have confessed Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus tells them, He begins to teach them diligently what is going to happen to them. You notice that in Matthew 16, He mentions that He is going to be rejected, but He just mentions that rejection as coming from Jewish sources, from the elders, from the chief priests and scribes. But He will be killed and He will be raised on the third day. Look at Matthew 17. Jesus is going to continually teach this to the disciples, to the twelve. He doesn't teach this to the crowds, as directly. But in 22, Matthew 17, when they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men And they will kill him and be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Now you notice that Matthew 20 went into more detail than either of those statements previously went into. It tells us more details, more specifics, which we're going to elaborate on in just a moment. But let me tell you one of the reasons why I just decided to cover this particular section because I don't want us to miss that the crux of the matter is his death and his resurrection. Now, I use the word crux. We often, when we come to an important point in an argument, say this is the crux of the matter. This is what it boils down to. That's why you're saying. I have read, and I could not find the source. I thought it was in yesterday, but I have read that even that expression and that word "crux." The idea is that just as the cross is central to Christianity, so this is central to my argument. That even that expression comes from the centrality of the cross and resurrection. Now if you find footnotes that I can give to that, please show it to me. Because the source I thought it was in, I could not find it there. But, but even that language calls attention to the centrality of the crucifixion. When we are talking about the focal point, and, and I know what I'm about to say runs the risk of minimizing other things, and that is not the point. But the focal point of the ministry of Jesus is not His oral teaching. The focal point is not His miracles per se. The focal point is His crucifixion and resurrection. We can't read the New Testament and come to any other conclusion. Why would I say that? The cross is central to the reason for which Jesus came into the world. If you take those verses from John 2 to John 8, those verses say that Jesus' time or hour has not yet come. Then the passages beginning with John 12 emphasize that His hour or His time has come. My point is, the hour for which Jesus came into the world was the hour that He was going to leave it. It was central to the reason that Jesus came to the world. The cross and the resurrection are central to the structure of all four Gospels. Soon we will begin Matthew 21. In Matthew 21 to Matthew 28, we are in the last week of the life of Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke devote about a fourth of their Gospels to the final week of Jesus. John, almost one half. When you just look at the structure of the Gospels, it points out the centrality of the cross and the resurrection. And it is central to the argument of the epistles. When Paul is talking about the unity that should exist between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, the Bible tells us that they have been reconciled in Christ and brought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The point is the cross makes these parties that were alienated from God in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another. We can elaborate on that all day long. It was central to the sermons of the book of Acts, the cross and the resurrection. This Jesus that you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. But the sermon in Acts 2, verses 22-36, focuses on the death and resurrection. Jesus and it is central to our worship as early Christians in Acts 20 verse 7 met up on the first day of the week to break bread, to partake of the Lord's Supper. They were doing that to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus as we do every week. Oh it is so central know that list is abbreviated because i haven't even touched upon the passage like first corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. it is the center of christianity and that's what brad mentioned a moment ago second corinthians 8 verse 9 for we know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for our sake became poor Every area of our life is connected back to the cross. Every area. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Family matters are connected to the cross. Our need to destroy pride is connected to the cross. May it never be that I should vote except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6 and verse 14. And our giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, as we've already mentioned, that's connected to the cross. It is the pattern for our life. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So... While we're going to say much about Matthew 21 through 28, Lord willing, in the near future, we don't want to brush over this idea of this being the center, the focal point, and it reminds us of our desperate need, as David stated earlier, our desperate need of sin, and how God answers that need in the death. And resurrection of Jesus. Now this passage in Matthew 20 has parallels in Mark 10, 32 through 34, and Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. This passage will go into more detail. And indeed, this passage is almost a self by self outline of what happened near the end of Matthew 26 to Matthew 28. Let's read the text step by step again. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them Again, this was teaching for the twelve, teaching for the apostles, not given to the crowds. They, of all people, need to be prepared for what is going to happen. We are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. Now, some of your translations have the word delivered there in verse 18. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribe. Some of your versions have the word betrayed in that passage. It is the same word that is translated hand in verse 19. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles. I do think that it's probably better to translate this, betrayed, here. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. In Matthew 26, right after telling us of that woman who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and who was criticized for doing it, Right after her act of generosity, we read Judas agreed with the chief priests and scribes to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed to chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. They will go through a legal proceeding. They will try to gather false witnesses to concoct a charge, all to justify their sentence of death. And we will see that in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 57. But Jesus is telling each step in advance of what will happen to him at Jerusalem. He will be betrayed to the religious leaders and they will condemn him to death. And then Jesus says that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. This is the first time in those three statements, Matthew 16, Matthew 17, and now Matthew 20, where Jesus specifically mentions the Gentiles and their involvement. He will be handed over to Gentiles as Jesus is handed over by His own people to Pilate, the Roman governor. Because the Jews don't have the power of capital punishment. They will hand Him over to the Gentiles. To Maul. crucified. In Matthew 27, verse 29, they have put a purple robe on him and they have covered his head with a crown of thorns. And They act as if they're bowing before him you know, and they hid him with his scepter, his reed, on that crown of thorns. And they mock, king him. The Bible says they were mocking This person, claim to be king. He will be mocked. He will be scourged. As a person is stripped, maybe of all their clothing, maybe left with a loin cloth, and beaten. And beaten until they were bruised and bleeding from everywhere. That was going to be what Jesus would experience in Jerusalem. And they will crucify him. Crucify him. It has been said that the Persians invented crucifixion, but the Romans. Perfected it. Capital punishment in our country when it is practiced. Is meant to take the life of the victim as quickly and painlessly as possible. Crucifixion was the opposite of this. As it is meant to prolong the agony and pain and suffering of the person. To the highest possible degree. It was meant so that the one who had experienced the treatment would be in utter agony. Utter agony. Incredible pain. And Jesus says that the Gentiles will flock Him, or mock Him, excuse me, scourge Him and crucify Him. But... We must never lose sight, as the disciples lost sight. He will be raised when the third day. Now, Luke's gospel tells us specifically the disciples didn't understand. Luke 18, 34. Now, we know from Matthew they didn't understand because what's recorded right after this that we plan to study in the near future in verses 20, 20, chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, that shows they didn't understand. If we understand the cross of Christ, we're not arguing about who's the greatest. To make those questions, to raise those questions, show we don't understand the cross. There is a statement, though, that I really get to Luke 18 34 says, These things were hidden from their eyes so that they wouldn't understand. And I know there could be the tendency to read that and to say, Oh, the disciples can't be blamed for not grasping this. Because they were prevented from understanding it. It was hidden from them. God would not let them understand it. If that's what that means, why does Jesus keep telling it to them? Why does He keep telling them that He's going to die if God is not letting them grasp the truth? And that word hidden is used again in Luke 19, verse 42. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and said if you had known in this day even you the things which made for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes was the reason the people at Jerusalem didn't understand the truth about Jesus being the Messiah because God didn't let them understand or was it because their hardness of heart and their unwillingness to listen wouldn't let don't understand. Is that what hid it from their eyes? I think it's the same way with the disciples. It's not that God doesn't want them to understand, but their misconceptions of the Messiah are so strong they can't grasp it. And if any of us had been there, I am quite confident we would have fallen in the same way. We don't think of this next point I'm going to make often. But do you realize that that is in some ways one of the most amazing prophecies in the New Testament? I mean, step by step, Jesus says, what is going to happen to him? In the next chapter, Jesus will be praised as a prophet. In verses 10 and 11 of Matthew 21, the Bible says that all the city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the answer is, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth. He's a prophet who is foretelling what's going to happen to him. Now... I say that, and He is, but I want you to understand He's more than a prophet. As in Matthew 16, He says, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, or some say Elijah, or some say one of the prophets. Jesus is a prophet. But He's more than a prophet. He is God come into flesh. And I would suggest to you that what Jesus has said in laying out these details proves both of that those things. It proves he's a prophet. It proves that he's more than a prophet. First of all, I know the fact that we know the end of the story makes it hard for us to realize what it must have been like in the ministry of Jesus hearing him preach and teach. But the fact that Jesus was going to experience these things that he states these things at the height of his popularity was not something his friends believed it was not something his enemies believed. Now, I can give you more documentation than this, but particularly for that point about the enemies when Jesus makes the triumphal entry. In John 12, verse 19, the Bible says the enemies are saying, you see, we're accomplishing nothing. The whole world is on that. The world is on His enemies, his friends, the bystanders would not have believed these words that Jesus said. But you know, Old Testament prophets said, this is what the Lord says." Jesus is continually saying, but I'm saying this to you. In the book of Isaiah, God shows his God by the fact that he can tell in advance what's going to happen. By Jesus telling in advance, Step by step, what's going to happen to him? Shows him as a prophet. But understanding the whole gospel of Matthew and how Jesus speaks, it shows us he's more than a prophet. He is more than a prophet. He is God who is going step by step, saying, What is going to happen to me? But I want to tell you it is utterly overwhelming to pull all this together. The God who seeks the world into existence. He was in the world. The world was made by him. And the world did not know him. The one who can heal with a word is going to die. And he's going to die not just any death. But perhaps the worst form of execution the world has ever seen. God come in the flesh is going to experience this kind of rejection, hatred, hostility, and pain. And then he's going to die. Jesse used part of this passage earlier, but look at Philippians 2, where it combines these thoughts, it combines these thoughts of Jesus being God with Jesus humbling himself. In in Philippians 2 verse 5, had this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He is God. But in verse 7, he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant Form of a bondservant, being made in likeness of a man, man, being found humble, being found in appearance as a man. Three statements that stress that God became man in the person of Jesus. And verse 8, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. he humbled himself and when he humbled himself in verse 9 god has highly exalted him the last couple of weeks we've touched upon a phrase the first will be last and the last will be first and we've talked a little bit about it But I don't think until we get to Jesus and what happened to him, we get to the depths of that. In crucifixion, the Romans were labeling someone as trash and not get to live. They did not crucify their own, except in the most extreme cases of treason. They were labeling someone as trash. And they were showing their hatred to the Jewish people when they put above Jesus' head the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was a way to mock him, it was a way to mock all the Jewish people. The Romans regarded someone as trash as they crucified. The Jews... Looked upon the one who's dying on the tree as dying under God's curse, because Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, pronounce it. pronounced a curse upon the one who dies on the tree. So, from the Jewish mind, from the Roman mind, Jesus Christ was rejected and shamed and stopped for different reasons. said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 23 and 24. But the idea that God came and God experienced this was just too much for some. It was a ground of stumbling for the Jews and foolishness. Now, at some point, you may have come across this. This is a drawing that was found in a cave outside of Rome. Here is the actual drawing in the museum. This is something trying to replicate that drawing to make it more visible to us, and it has Greek writing below it. And it says, Alex Venus worships is God. Now this goes back to, at most times I've seen it dated 200 AD. Some of dated as early as 85 AD. But it's very early. And you notice the man with his hand up, which is viewed here as a posture of worship. Do you notice a calls and it has a human mind with a donkey's head? A donkey's head. This is the way of marking the Christian. First will be last. And the last will be first. The one that was God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, dies in just a shameful way. The water of life on the cross cries out. I first. life is put to death. Acts 3 verses 13 through 15. Truly the first has become last. So if we ever look at that phrase and try to understand what it means, we have to tie it first to Christ that the one who humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, this one who humbled himself in such a fashion, God has highly exalted him. God has made him firstborn over all creation. Uh, uh, Colossians 1, 15. Colossians 1, verse 18. He's astonished. What is that? Now, I recognize that there's one probably person here who's never heard these things or something like them. And may God help us bears it to hear it and tell it a hundred more times or a thousand more times mm-hmm. but that we never let our familiarity with the story bring content I had the first Comes to last in the crucifixion of Christ. And through his resurrection, he provides hope to all of salvation. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of what you've done to deliver us from our sin and our rebellion. How you delivered us at such great cost to yourself. May we never cease to be awed by this story, the greatest story ever told. We praise you for it in his name. Amen. We talk about what did we say? It begins with what God has done to save us. We created the problem by our sin. He gave the solution in the death and resurrection of Christ. But we must turn to Him and surrender ourselves before Him. Humbling ourselves before Him so that He will exalt us. If you believe what we've said today and you want to turn from your sins and the way that you've walked if you believe it's true and you want to turn from your sins come be baptized this day to have your sins washed away as we stand there.